So, <clears throat> Sojourners is an Old Testament fellowship group. So what do we do at Christmas time? Well, we look at Christmas in the Old Testament. And so that's what we're going to do this morning. You know, Christmas did not come without warning. It didn't come without preparation and prophecy. And so we're going to look at some of that this morning. You know, Pastor John called me last Monday, and he said, uh, Greg, what can I do to help prepare for your message on Sunday? And I said, John, well, you could, you know, go through some of the Old Testament passages and how they relate to Christmas. And so I appreciate him doing that. Although he did a little, little more than I asked him to, though. He stepped on some of my toes. But that's okay. He's learning. So... As we come to the study of Christmas in the Old Testament, I can't help but mention that Satan has made great sport of making sure that the emphasis at Christmas time is not on Christmas, especially by mixing in jolly mythical characters who urge people to try to be on the good list, which is, of course, what Satan wants. Trying to be on the good list ends you up in hell. Um, this, of course, casts the whole season in a context of fiction and myth. Satan's perversely clever Christmas cluttering allows the vast majority of people who are on their way to hell to avoid the reality and the implications of the incarnation of Jesus the Messiah. Today we're going to um, look through some of the Old Testament and see some of the passages in which this uh, Christmas event is prophesied and why Christmas exists. Why did Christ come as a baby in the manger? As good sojourners, we're going to concentrate on Christmas in the Old Testament. And I apologize in advance, because once again we're going to jump around uh, some of you like that, some of you don't, but uh, it's, it's on the PowerPoint, so if you get lost, just uh, hang on to that. So, um, we're going to begin with my new favorite Christmas passage, Isaiah 59. You won't hear uh, Linus reading it, although he should. Isaiah 59, verse 2. And here we're going to talk about the purpose of Christmas. Why Christmas? Isaiah 59, verse 2. God here says, Your iniquities have made a separation between you and your God. Your sins have hid His face from you so that he does not hear. This is mankind's fundamental problem. This is mankind's fundamental problem that mankind has no solution for. Go then to verse 10 of Isaiah 59. He says, We grope along the wall like blind men. We grope like those who have no eyes. We stumble at midday as in the twilight. Among those who are vigorous, we are like dead men. That's, by the way, very similar to what Paul says in Ephesians 2, right? That we're dead. 
in our trespasses and sins. We're not just sick, we're not just unhealthy, we're not just on the verge of death, we are dead. And therefore, as dead people, we can't do anything. Once I embarrassed Joe by having him come up and lay on the floor, and I took a pill, and I put it on his chest, and I said, okay, Joe, you are dead. Now take this pill, because it will bring you back to life. But he was dead, and he couldn't do it. And that's the point. We're dead. There's nothing that we can do. Then look at verse 12. Actually, let's go ahead with verse 11. All of us growl like bears and moan sadly like doves. We hope for justice, but there is none for salvation, but it is far from us. Our transgressions are multiplied before thee. Our sins testify against us. Our transgressions are with us and we know our iniquities transgressing and denying the Lord and turning away from our God, speaking oppression and revolt, conceiving in and uttering from the heart lying words, justice is turned back, righteousness stands far away. This is the need for Christmas. If you go to verse 16, God explains what he's going to do about it. Actually, look at the second half of verse 15. Now the Lord saw... And it was displeasing in his sight that there was no justice. And he saw that there was no man, there was no one to solve this. And he was astonished there was no one to intercede. Then his own arm brought salvation to him, and his righteousness upheld him. Verse 17, he put on righteousness like a breastplate and a helmet of salvation on his head. And then go down to verse 20. And a Redeemer will come to Zion, to those who turn from transgression in Jacob, declares the Lord. So this is the purpose of of Christmas. Christmas becomes the solution to mankind's unsolvable problem. God himself satisfies right now. Uh, If he were here, he'd be very upset with me because I'm not going to spend the whole time in Isaiah, Um, which we could, but maybe I'll do that someday. Um, But uh, we're going to look through various passages and see some things that we see uh, that that the Bible tells us through prophecy concerning the coming Messiah. I want to start and we're basically going to go in order through the Bible so you aren't jumping all over the place. But we're going to actually start in Job because that was actually the first book of the Bible written. And then after that, we'll follow what, you know, the, the way it's printed uh, in your text. But look at Job uh, <clears throat> for a moment, chapter 19. Job chapter 19, and we get technically the earliest mention of Christmas in the Bible because this is the first book that was written. Job chapter 19 and verse 25, as Job is in the midst of all of his sufferings, he says this in verse 25, as for me, I know that my Redeemer lives, and at the last he will take his stand on the earth. In other words, there will be an an incarnation. There will be a Redeemer, and he will come to earth. 
Okay? There will be a re- he will take his stand on the earth. This is the first prophecy of the incarnation. Now let's go back to Genesis and go in chronological order in terms of the narrative and follow through Scripture from there. Go to Genesis chapter 3. And we see a prophecy about Christmas. Genesis chapter 3 and verse 15. Of course, in chapter uh, 3 of Genesis, Adam and Eve have fallen. They have sinned. And God now tells them the effects of that. And part of that is verse 15. And God says, I will put enmity between you and the woman and between your seed and her seed. He shall bruise bruise you on the head, and you shall bruise him on the heel. So God is speaking to the serpent here. He's speaking to Satan. And he says, I will put enmity between you and the woman, between your seed and her seed. He will bruise you on the head, and you shall bruise him on the heel. So um, Genesis 3.15 says that a human will crush Satan. A human will crush Satan. When was the last time you heard that as part of the Christmas story? That's a central key to the Christmas story because it's why Christmas happens to begin with. Because Jesus has to come, the Redeemer has to come and stand on the earth and crush Satan through his sacrifice. Now notice again also, and we've we've emphasized this a lot, but just for people who haven't been here before, it's between, he says, between your seed and her seed. Now, that's unusual. Uh, Dr. MacArthur was talking this morning about impossibilities uh, that are, in fact, possible because of God. And this is another one uh, that he referenced, which is her seed. A woman doesn't have seed. The seed comes from the man. But in this case, the woman has a seed. And this is a, this is a reference to the virgin birth. This is the first prediction of the virgin birth. That human that will crush Satan will be the seed of the woman. A woman will give birth. All right, let's move to Genesis 22. And again, these are just representative. It's it's not everything that we could look at, but some of the things that I think are significant. Genesis chapter 22 Abraham has been told to sacrifice his son, his only son, Isaac, and so he takes him to sacrifice him. And verse 8, actually let's look at verse 7, Isaac spoke to Abraham, his father, and said, My father, and he said, Here I am, my son. And he said, Behold, the fire and the wood, but where is the lamb for the burnt offering? And verse 8, Abraham said, God will provide for himself the lamb for the burnt offering, my son. This is exactly what Isaiah 15 says when God says there's no one and so I will provide through my own arm the answer. And so God will provide for himself the lamb. And of course, the lamb will be Jesus. Remember what John the Baptist said. We don't have to turn to it because you already heard it once this morning. What John the Baptist says in John 1, 29, when he sees Jesus, he says what? Behold the Lamb of God. Behold the Lamb of God. That's what's being talked about here. 
Um, so Christ is sent to accomplish this salvation. He will be the sacrificial lamb. Jump for a moment to Isaiah. Isaiah 53. The famous passage about the suffering servant. Isaiah 53, starting at verse 7. He, the suffering servant, was oppressed and he was afflicted, yet he did not open his mouth like a lamb that is led to slaughter and like a sheep that is silent before its shearers, so he did not open his mouth. By oppression and judgment he was taken away. As for his generation, who considered that he was cut off from the land of the living for the transgression of my people to whom the stroke was due. Now, we often read the part about uh, Jesus is the lamb, but sometimes we don't emphasize that he's the lamb who is sacrificed for the transgression of the people to whom the stroke was due. Who are the people to whom the stroke was due? Me. You. Now, Technically here, it's talking about Israel, but it's the, the, the fallen condition of all of mankind that we saw already in Isaiah 59. The ones to whom the stroke is due. But he is the lamb that makes the sacrifice on our behalf. Look at verse 10. But the Lord was pleased to crush him, putting him to grief, if he would render himself as a guilt offering and he did render himself a guilt offering. All right, let's um, turn to Deuteronomy. With Moses, he taught them what the scriptures said about himself. Well, we're in Moses, we're in the Pentateuch here, but Moses wrote. Deuteronomy 18, verse 15. The Lord your God will raise up for you a prophet like me, says Moses. Moses is speaking to the people. The Lord your God will raise up a prophet like me from among you, from your countrymen. You shall listen to him. Now, how is he like Moses? He's an intimate with God. Moses was intimate with God. Moses went up to the mountain, and God spoke with Moses and nobody else. He was affirmed by God through signs, through miracles, and he was mediator of a covenant. Moses was a mediator of a covenant that God made with Israel. These are all characteristics of Jesus. He's intimate with God because he is God. He was affirmed by God through signs and miracles. Like Dr. MacArthur pointed us to this morning, what did, what did Jesus tell John the Baptist when, through his uh, disciples that he sent? Tell them what you see. People are healed, etc. Signs and miracles. And he was the mediator of a covenant. Jesus, the mediator of the new covenant, the ultimate covenant. So, the prophet that Moses is talking about here in Deuteronomy 18.15 is 
Christ, the Messiah. Go to Deuteronomy 32. Deuteronomy 32, verse 43. Rejoice, O nations, with his people, for he will avenge the blood of his servants and will render vengeance on his adversaries and will atone for his land and his people. God will atone for his people. You know, the whole Old Testament sacrificial system was supposed to be them atoning for their own sins by doing these sacrifices and whatnot, but they're also reminded along the way, constantly, and the whole book of Hebrews is about the fact that really these aren't really atoning for that sacrifice. These are a picture of Christ, the Messiah, and his one sacrifice that covered it for everyone. He will atone for the people's sins. Uh, moving from the Pentateuch to the prophets, let's look at 1 Samuel. Just go about three books over. 1 Samuel chapter 2. 1 We heard this one read this morning as well. Well, not this one, but end of it. 1 Samuel 2 verse 10. This is Hannah's prayer, and Hannah says in verse 10, Those who contend with the Lord will be shattered. Against them he will thunder in the heavens. The Lord will judge the ends of the earth. He will give strength to his king and will exalt the horn of his anointed. He will exalt the horn of his anointed. And this is what Zacharias includes in his uh, exaltation, that we read earlier this morning in Luke 1.69. Zechariah there, filled with the Holy Spirit, prophesied, saying, in verse 69, He has raised up a horn of salvation for us in the house of David his servant. The horn of salvation. The horn of his anointed. It's the same horn. The horn here stands for power. This is the power that causes this to happen. But Samuel also makes one of the clearest messianic prophecies in 2 Samuel chapter 7. 2 Samuel chapter 7 and verse 12, beginning in verse 12. Samuel says to David, when your days are complete and you lie down with your father, that is when you kick the bucket, I will raise up your descendant after you, who will come forth from you, and I will establish his kingdom. He shall build a house for my name. I will establish the throne of his kingdom forever. Go down to, the, to verse 15. But my loving kindness shall not depart from him as I took it away from Saul, whom I removed before you. Your house and your kingdom shall endure before me forever. Your throne shall be established forever. This is the Davidic covenant. This is another covenant. You have the Mosaic covenant, you have Christ with the new covenant in the end, and this is the Davidic covenant promising to David's line that the Messiah, this eternal kingdom, this eternal king of an eternal kingdom, will come from his line. How do we know that? Because the angel Gabriel 
says that to Mary in, once again, Luke chapter 1. 1 verse 32, Gabriel says, He will be great and will be called the Son of the Most High, and the Lord God will give him the throne of his father David, and he will reign over the house of Jacob forever, and his kingdom will have no end. This is the same prophecy. The writer of Hebrews repeats it in Hebrews uh, 1.5 as well. The same prophecy. Jesus comes to be this eternal king of an eternal kingdom. And so we have to have Christmas. Now, we could uh, spend some time talking about this, but we have shortened time today, so I'm going to skip it. But anybody who's interested, uh, Satan knows all of this as well. And so Satan spent some time, like a few thousand years, trying to prevent the Messiah before he ever came. And I did a whole message on this, which, by the way, isn't on the Sojourner's site anymore. I was going to refer you to it, but somehow it disappeared. So I guess it was probably bad. Um, so, so uh, but if you're interested in looking up, these are three of the examples of when Satan tried to prevent Christmas. You know, you have these Hallmark movies about Christmas being canceled, or cartoon movies about Christmas being canceled. Of course, those have nothing to do with Christmas. They're about Wintermas and Satanmas, uh, Santamas. Um, but nonetheless, Satan actually did try to prevent Christmas, and you can look at those passages. And just in case somebody didn't get the point, Isaiah chapter 7, verse 14. Therefore, the Lord himself will give you a sign. Behold, a virgin will be with child and bear a son, and she will call his name Emmanuel. You know, right off the back here, which we off the bat here, which we don't usually do, the Lord himself will give you a sign. God is doing this. God is giving the sign because God is the one who is creating this pregnancy in the virgin. Okay? The Lord himself will give you a sign. A virgin will be with child and bear a son. She will call his name Emmanuel. Um, now, it's stipulating a son, by the way, the seed of the woman, back in Genesis 3, God says he will crush Satan. And this is telling us also, this is that one. This is the virgin, the seed of a woman, a son. And his name will be Emmanuel, God with us. God with us. He will be God. He will be God. Chapter 9. A reminder, verse 6, a child will be born to us, a son will be given to us. Here, Dr. MacArthur mentioned that, that the son is given to us. God is doing this. And the government will rest on his shoulders. His name will be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Eternal Father, 
Prince of Peace. You know, it intrigues me. Why does this get no attention when, when the Messiah is sung, for example, uh, and everybody just sings over it? Uh, and then they go on with this notion, you know, that Jesus was a, a good man or, or a, you know, a teacher or they spend their time in Wintermas and whatnot. Why do they skip over? It specifically says, this son will be mighty God, eternal. We shouldn't skip over it. This is crucially important. Um, and it, it, it has to do with, of course, people skipping over things that they don't want to have to deal with. Um, but also look at another thing here in verse 6. It says he is prince of peace. This is not talking about earthly peace or social peace. This is talking about peace with God. This is pointing back to Isaiah or pointing forward, I guess, to Isaiah 59, 2, that we are separated from God because of our sin, because of our iniquities. We're at war with God. This one will be the Prince of Peace. He will, the one, he will be the one who restores peace between God and men. And how do I know that? Luke chapter 2 and verse 14 which is always, virtually always, quoted incorrectly by the world. What do the angels say when this child is born? Glory to God in the highest, and on earth, peace, goodwill toward men. Wait, that's not what it says. That's what has been used throughout the years to avoid the reality what does it say? And on earth, peace among men with whom he is pleased. It's not just he will be a nice guy who will bring peace to the world and everybody will just enjoy peace and will just have a wonderful time. It is restoring peace with men with whom God is pleased, those people who are his. That's where the peace comes in. There's precious little peace for people with whom he's not pleased. We could turn to the book of Revelation and see some problems there. So he is the prince of peace because he's the one who as mighty God and eternal father will bring peace between God and men. He will solve the conundrum of Isaiah 59. And then verse 7 of chapter 9, there will be no increase, no end to the increase of his government or of peace on the throne of David and over his kingdom to establish it and to uphold it with justice and righteousness from then on and forevermore. This puts him on the throne of David and in the everlasting eternal kingdom. Uh, just like the angel said in Luke 1 and 32, he will be great and be called the Son of the Most High. The Lord God will give him the throne of his father, 
David, and he will reign over the house of Jacob forever. His kingdom will have no end. So Samuel talks about it, Isaiah talks about it, and the angel tells Mary about it at his birth. Isaiah 11.1, we've been there already today. Isaiah 11.1, then a shoot will spring from the stem of Jesse and a branch from his roots will bear fruit. This, first of all, talks about his descent from David, that he is fulfilling that, the descent from David, another passage that does that, and that he will be a branch. And Dr. MacArthur uh, talked about that this morning. He will be the branch man, um, Netzer, the root of Nazareth. And he talked about that. So he will be the branch man. And that, first, first of all, gives us a hint as to where the, he will live, but it also has other implications, which we don't have time for at this moment. So um, he'll be the branch man. Now, quiz time. What's the one Old Testament prophecy about Christmas that's in all four Gospels? Time's up. Go to Isaiah 40. You know it, you just don't know that that's the answer. Isaiah 40, verse 3, A voice is calling, Clear the way for the Lord in the wilderness. Make smooth in the desert a highway for our God. This about John the Baptist, who we just talked about today, this year, clear the way for the Lord, that's Yahweh, and make smooth in the desert a highway for our God, that's Elohim. He clears the way for Yahweh, Elohim, for God, very God. The name of God that he gives us, and Elohim, which refers to his uh, his, his power and his being, so to speak. And so it identifies the Christ of Christmas as God. Because who is John the Baptist clearing the way for? For Christ. And he is the Lord, Yahweh, and he is our God, Elohim. So it's another reference to the deity of Christ in the Old Testament prophecies. Uh, turning ahead a little to Ezekiel, a couple of books. Ezekiel. Chapter 37. Ezekiel chapter 37, starting at verse 24. And my servant David, this is a messianic prophecy, talking about the Messiah, talking about the Christ. And by the way, let me remind you, Christ is not Jesus' last name. That's what the world thinks. Christ is who he is. Christ is Messiah, Jesus the Messiah. Here in verse 24, talking about the Messiah, my servant David will be king over them, and they will all have one shepherd. They will walk in my ordinances, keep my statutes, and observe them, and they shall live in the land that I gave to Jacob, my servant. And then farther down that verse, David, my servant, shall be their prince how long? 
forever. And I will make a covenant of peace with them. Is that a political peace? Is that a social peace? Is that the covenant that Christ introduces? No, it is a covenant of peace with them, peace with man, with them. I will place them uh, I will place them and multiply them and will set my sanctuary in their midst forever. My dwelling place also will be with them, and I will be their God and they will be my people. And the nations will know that I am the Lord who sanctifies Israel and my sanctuary is in their midst forever. That's referring to the end in Revelation when God dwells with us again. Of course, he dwelt with us once before, the incarnation, when Christ came. John talks about that in John chapter 1. So, He will be a great shepherd. Ever heard of that in the New Testament? He will be a great shepherd, Ezekiel tells us. He will be the initiator of a new covenant. And he'll be of the line of David. And he will bring peace with men and establish his sanctuary with them, live with them forever. Daniel 7 And here I'm poaching on somebody else's ground. For those of you who are wondering if in Sojourners we would have Christmas messages around Christmas, we have one today, at least I'm trying to make one, and we'll have one next week as well. Um, But for now, just by way of introduction to that, Daniel 7, verses 13 and 14 Daniel sees the vision of the coming Messiah. I kept looking in the night visions. Behold, with the clouds of heaven, one like a son of man was coming. And verse 14, to him was given dominion, glory, and a kingdom that all the people's nations and men of every language might serve him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion which will not pass away. His kingdom is one which will not be destroyed That is the one kingdom that was prophesied back in 2 Samuel 7, the eternal kingdom. Now, the nice thing about Daniel and what I think we're going to deal with next week is Daniel chapter 9. The nice thing about Daniel is he tells us when this Messiah is going to come. We don't have to guess. We don't have to wonder. He tells us exactly when he's going to come. Look at Daniel chapter 9, verse 25. So you are to know and discern that from the issuing of a decree to destroy and to restore and rebuild Jerusalem until Messiah the prince, until Messiah, this king who's coming, the time between the the decree to restore and rebuild Jerusalem and the coming of the Messiah, the Prince, will be seven weeks weeks. That is, and if you change the weeks into years, which is what Daniel is doing here, uh, then it's 70 weeks or 70 sets of seven. And uh, Dr. Child is going to tell us all about that next week, so I won't belabor it. For now, trust me, 
knowing that Abner's going to say it later. Um, and so, Dr. Varner, in a, in a previous existence here in Sojourners, uh, spent some time demonstrating to us that, remember, when Daniel was taken captive uh, and carried off to Babylon, and he impressed the king, he was put in charge of all of the mystics and so forth of, of Daniel, of uh, Babylon. And so he trained all of these wise men, magi, he trained them all. You ever wondered why those three dudes were headed to Israel at that particular time? It's because they knew it was time. They had been trained, they had been taught. They knew this passage. They knew it was time for this prince, this Messiah, to come. It's a long journey from Babylon to Israel. They didn't do it in one night. Oh, we see the star. Let's take off. Maybe if you had today's a jumbo jet, but they didn't. They were on camels. It took them some time. And by the way, they didn't get there that night anyway. That's a whole other... I thought about doing a message on the things we know about Christmas that, we, that aren't true. Likely, the wise men coming from Babylon, where Daniel headed the wise men, were coming following his instruction. All right, let's go forward to Micah. To Micah. This is one of those minor prophets that sojourners are now very familiar with, but others might not be. So it's right after Jonah and before Nahum. Of course, Nahum you'll miss if you sneeze, but... um, It's right in there after Jonah, Micah. Some of these little books have lots of power. Micah, chapter 5, verse 2, tells us that Christmas will take place in Bethlehem. But as for you, Bethlehem Ephratah, too little to be among the clans of Judah, from you one will go forth for me to be ruler in Israel. So we know that this Messiah will be born in Bethlehem. This is so clear that the priests and scribes could tell Herod in the story that we generally read in the New Testament in Matthew 2, or actually in uh, Starting in verse 4, Herod, gathering together all the chief priests and scribes of the people, began to inquire of them where the Christ, where the Messiah, was to be born. And they said to him, In Bethlehem of Judea, for so it has been written by the prophet. And then he, uh, they quote Micah 5 2. So they knew, they knew where the Messiah was coming from. That's how Herod knew where to go and slaughter all the children. But notice what the rest of verse 2 says. So this Messiah will come from Bethlehem. But look at the last couple of sentences here. His goings forth are from long ago, from the days of eternity. Really? So wait a minute. He's being born in Bethlehem. 
but he's been traveling around since the days of eternity. How does that work? Because the Christ of Christmas is God. There's only one eternal person in all of history or prehistory or post-history. There's only one eternal person. That's God. And this baby who's going to be born in Bethlehem is from eternity. He is God. Notice what else it says about him in verse 5. And this one will be our peace. He's going to restore peace between God and men. The problem of Isaiah 59. So, he'll be from Bethlehem. He will be God, and he will restore peace between God and men. Then go forward a few, a few books to Zechariah. Some of you are saying, yeah, man, I know Zechariah. So, Zechariah chapter 6. Zechariah chapter 6, verse 12. Then say to him, thus says the Lord of hosts, Behold, a man whose name is Branch, or Sprout, for he will branch out from where he is, and he will build the temple of the Lord. Yes, it is he who will build the temple of the Lord, he who will bear the honor and sit and rule on his throne. Thus he will be a priest on his throne, and the council of peace will be between the two offices. That was a lot going on here. First of all, this branch man that Isaiah told us about, this branch man of Christmas, now we see will be king and priest. Again at verse 13. He, will, he who will bear the honor and sit and rule on his throne, thus he will be a priest on his throne. What's wrong with that picture? Priests and thrones don't mix in the Old Testament. In fact, to be a priest, you had to be from the, priest, from the tribe of Levi, and to be a king, you had to be the tribe of Judah. So how does that work? Well, it works in the branch man. It works in the Messiah, which we talked about at length, and if you want to know that, then go to the Sojourner site and look up this passage, the message that covers this passage. So, Zechariah tells us that he will be both king and priest, which, by the way, gives us perhaps the significance of the gifts that the wise men brought in Matthew 2.11. I won't look at Joe to see if he shakes his head up or down or sideways. I, I, I think this, so I'm just going to say it. So remember the gifts that are given to Mary in Matthew 2.11. They fell down and worshipped him, and we all know what they are, right? Gifts of... Very good, choir. Another choir today. Gold, frankincense, and myrrh. Gold you give to a king. Frankincense is the type of thing that a priest uses 
incense, and myrrh is for the sacrifice. That's what you, they used with dead bodies. So he's going to be priest and king and sacrifice, the lamb that was referenced in Genesis. Nothing in the Bible is accidental or random. And it also perhaps gives us a hint as to where he would live. He's the branch man. He would live in Nazareth. All right, let's go to the last book of the Old Testament, the prophet Malachi. The Italian prophet, as Dr. Varner used to say. Malachi. Chapter 3, verse 1. Behold, I'm going to send my messenger. Who's that? John the Baptist. Behold, I'm going to send my messenger, and he will clear the way before me. We've heard that multiple times. And the Lord whom you seek, we started in Genesis, and before that, technically in Job, And we're in the last verse of the Old Testament. What about this guy? He will restore the hearts of the father to their children and the hearts of the children to their fathers. Interesting. In Luke chapter 1, in Luke chapter 1 and verse 17, The angel is speaking to Zacharias, and he says, in verse 17, It is he who will go as a forerunner, he, John the Baptist, who will go as a forerunner before him in the spirit and power of Elijah to turn the hearts of the fathers back to the children. What we just read in Malachi 4.6. And in Chapter 1, verse 76, when Zechariah, filled with the Holy Spirit, prophesies, he refers to Malachi 3.1 that we just read in verse 76. And you, child, will be called the prophet of the Most High, for you will go on before the Lord to prepare his ways. So the very last verse of the Old Testament is a prophecy of the Messiah. It is a declaration that Christmas is coming. It's going to be 400 years, but Christmas is coming. God has not forgotten. God knows the desperate condition we're in. God has read Isaiah 59 because He inspired it. And He knows the situation that we're in. And we know He knows His eternal plan for fixing the problem. So, let's do some reverse engineering. Turn with me to Matthew. Matthew chapter 1, verse 20. The angel comes to Joseph and says, Joseph, son of David, do not be afraid to take Mary as your wife, for that which has been conceived in her 
is of the Holy Spirit. Genesis 3.15, the woman's seed. Verse 21 of Matthew 1, And she will bear a son, and you shall call his name Jesus, for it is he who will save his people from their sins. Jesus means Jehovah saves. Jehovah saves. God saves. He will save his people from their sins. Isaiah 59, 16 is fulfilled. God will establish salvation himself because Jesus is himself and he will save his people from their sins. Matthew 1, 23. Behold, the virgin shall be with child and they shall call his name Emmanuel, which translated means God with us. This is quoting Isaiah 7.14. And people sometimes say, wait a minute, time out. It says here, you shall call his name Emmanuel, but they don't call him Emmanuel. They just called him Jesus in verse 21, because it's the same thing. Emmanuel is who he is. He is God with us. Jesus is what he does. He saves. Matthew chapter 2, verse 2. Where is he who has been born king of the Jews? For we saw his star in the east and have come to worship him. The Magi knew Daniel's teaching in Daniel 9.25. Matthew 2:11 They came into the house and saw the they came in the house not the cave or the whatever they came in the house and saw the child with Mary's mother they fell down and worshiped him and opened their treasures presented to him gifts of gold and frankincense and myrrh like Zechariah 6 12 and 13 talked about Matthew 2:23 they came and resided in a city called Nazareth it was spoken through the prophets might be fulfilled. He shall be called a Nazarene. And by the way, it never actually says he shall be called a Nazarene. It's just he's called the branch man. And so everybody understood what that meant. In Isaiah 11.1 1, and Jeremiah 23.5 and Zechariah 3.8. There are three places in the Old Testament where he's called the branch, the branch man. Looking at in Luke chapter 1, verse 26. In the sixth month, the angel Gabriel was sent from God to a city in Galilee called Nazareth. Once again, the numerous branch prophecies here, along with Isaiah 4 2 and some others. which I have on the screen so I can just run through it fa fast. <laughs> uh, Luke 1, 27. says, Gabriel was sent from God to a city in Galilee called Nazareth to a virgin engaged to a man whose name was Joseph of the descendants of David. Virgin, house of David. We've seen this in the Old Testament. Luke 1.31, Behold, you will conceive in your womb and bear a son. You shall call him Jesus. Jesus, Jehovah saves. Isaiah 59.16 fulfilled. Luke 1.32, He will be great. 
We called the Son of the Most High. The Lord God will give him the throne of his father David. The throne of David to reign forever. No end to his kingdom. 2 Samuel 7 and elsewhere. We've been there too. Because there was no room for them in the inn. Her firstborn. Her firstborn. Genesis 3.15. The seed of the woman. It's also an unusual emphasis on a woman, by the way in that culture. Firstborn here, just to be technical, means preeminent. It's referring to his position. Luke 2.11, for today in the city of David, there's been born for you a Savior who is Christ the Lord. Bethlehem, remember what Micah 5.2 said. And he is born a Savior who is Christ the Lord. He is Savior and Lord. The Christ of Christmas is God. And He came to save, to restore peace between God and men. And Luke 2.14, peace among men with whom He is pleased. He's not pleased with anybody until until he crosses that separation, until he makes peace between God and men. This verse can't exist without Christmas, the second part of this this verse, because God isn't pleased with anybody. All have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. We are dead in our trespasses and sins. But now, now there are men with whom he is pleased. It's the result of justification that God himself performed. So the world is enamored with the adorable baby of Christmas, the one whose last name is Christ. They're not so interested in the authoritative man the baby grew into. The one whose position is the Christ. The word Christmas means celebration of Christ or celebration of the Messiah. It is not a baby shower. Christmas is ultimately about God's plan of salvation to save spiritually dead people who are separated from Him without hope. The obscured truth is that Christmas was the means by which God Himself, God incarnate, provided salvation that man was helpless to achieve. And the Old Testament teaches it just as much as the New Testament does. Let's pray. Father, thank you for your word. Thank you for the Old Testament and the New Testament and how there is perfect synchronicity between them. There is perfect synchronicity in your perfect plan. Father, we are just humbled and we bow before you for your willingness to allow your own arm to provide salvation for us. And we wish... We want to praise you during this time of year 
We should praise you every day, every hour, but particularly at this time of year when people are paying attention to the Incarnation, at least in some form, we want to praise you and glorify you, and most of all, thank you. Amen.